Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. Whether you're thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career, we want to help you live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my HR leadership expertise, and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, pointers, career stories, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to How to Launch a Career Campaign with our guest, Ron Carucci. Career success is not a question of luck, but an intentional focused effort over time. Ron, a speaker, coach, and best-selling author of eight books, shares how looking in, looking out, and looking ahead can help you navigate an effective career campaign that allows you to reach your goals. We're very excited to have with us Ron Carucci. Ron is a best-selling author of eight books, including the recent Amazon number one, Rising to Power. Ron is a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review and Forbes. He is a TEDx speaker and a member of the Marshall Goldsmith MG100 Coaches Community. His works have been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Inc., Business Insider, MSNBC, Business Week, and Smart Business. He's the co-founder and managing director of Navalent, where he helps executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. Welcome, Ron. We're really honored to have you with us. Mary, it is such a delight to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. What if we jump right in, Ron, and talk about what does it mean to launch a career campaign? And what are some of the main elements? Many executives, and you know, as a seasoned HR pro, you've seen this when you have candidates sitting in front of you. You can tell who's prepared to really bring their best version of themselves to the market and who's never done it before. Whether they're early career folks or they're mid-career folks who've had employment for 10, 20 years and suddenly find themselves in a place where for the first time in a long time, they're now having to sell themselves and they don't know how to do it. And so many at either end of that spectrum have misguided notions of what it means to go find a job. And it's just so not about going to find a job. You're shaping the next chapter of your story. And it's so much bigger. And in a complex world of technology and social media, it's even harder. So whenever I work with executives or early career professionals who are launching a campaign, I help them understand that it's a multifaceted platform of activities that you have to keep going in simultaneous ways. And there are three aspects to that. The first one I call looking in. It's astounding to me. And I'm guessing you've seen this too, Mary, where you have somebody in front of you who clearly is not aware of how they're coming across. They lack self-knowledge. They've been uncalibrated for too long. They've never gotten deep feedback on their presence, on how articulate they are, on how verbose they are, on how shy they are, on their flat affect. And so you've got to build a foundation of looking within, of understanding, A, do you know who you are? Do you know what version of yourself is coming across? Do you know that sometimes there's a gap between your intentions and your impact? And do you know what that gap is and have you been told? Secondly, you have to look within to understand, do you have well-articulated ambitions? Do you know what you want? Do you know what you desire? Do you know when you're at your best? Many people, especially mid-career hires who are looking to change jobs, who've suddenly found themselves unemployed and have a mortgage and kids, they're so focused on replacing the paycheck for understandable reasons that they're selling short all the other important aspects that are going to making a decision about the fact you're hiring your next boss and you have to make sure you hire well. 
And then do you have the emotional resilience and fortitude to go on the journey? Do you have the tenacity? Do you have the confidence? Are you ready for the rejection? Are you ready to bounce back? The journey can be cruel. It can be very cruel. And so that's the foundation of looking in. The next layer I call looking out. Do you know your audience? Do you know who you're selling yourself to? And that I mean by person and by company, not just the hiring world. I'm working with an executive right now who's a, a seasoned CMO, and I'm preparing him for his final board interviews. He had a binder, I mean like a four-inch binder, with profiles of every C-suite executive he was meeting with, every media press release the company had ever experienced, all of their mergers, all of their branding. He had done his homework on just that one company. That was impressive. But then knowing your audience comes with a side of that was, do you know your story? So we all know that the story you tell about yourself is really critical to the audience you're addressing, you're trying to compel, you're trying to win over. And behavioral event interviews have been around for 20 years now. But if you haven't interviewed for a job in 30, you know what those are. So when someone says, tell me a story about when you failed, or tell me a story about when you had to work in a resource-constrained environment, your stories aren't ready. And so you have to have a repertoire of well-buttoned-down, spontaneous-sounding, compelling stories that you can reach for when you're asked for the story. And then the looking ahead part is the last thing is, do you have a network? And we all know how critical having a well-built, engaging, mutually beneficial network of people you call upon, not just when you need something. Do you have a social media presence? I can't tell you how often executives don't even know how to build a LinkedIn profile. Some of them don't even know what LinkedIn is. Or they're on it, but they're not engaged. And they don't realize that it's not just enough to have a profile. You have to be actively engaged in the communities, in the groups, in the conversations where you want to be found. Are your ideas well articulated in a few posts you've created so people know how you think? And along with that, do you have, it's astounding to me today that we still are using what we all know to be the most unreliable device for selection, but we're still using it. It's the resume. We know that it's highly unreliable, but we still have to have them. And so do you have a killer one? Do you have a document that represents you, tells your story, conveys who you are with personality and insight and results and impact in a way you'd want? Because today, those are being scanned through artificial intelligence at a thousand a second, just looking for keywords. So do you know what the keywords need to be on your resume to get your resume scanned out of the pile into the potential pile? So look in, look out, look ahead. Those are all the elements that it takes to really create and execute a sharp career campaign. And I think so many people feel so unprepared for the journey. Those are brilliant. I want to come back to so many. Let's start on the look in. I think one of your first ones, if not the first one, is the mindset that makes some of these so possible in that it's not about a job. To your point, this is about your whole career journey and aspirations. And if that's the mindset, then some of these really make sense. And I think if you thought, yeah, I'm just going for a job, you wouldn't maybe consider doing as many of these. Oh, you might do them poorly. Poorly. If it's about (laughs) halfway. I've got to replace my income. And the anxiety for a mid-career person with a mortgage and a car payment and kids, it's profoundly debilitating when you're afraid. But we all know that we make our worst decisions when we're afraid. And so if you haven't got a way to manage the fear, a way to manage your anxiety and process it in a healthy way, and to the degree possible, separate out the economic realities from the career realities. If you have to go and take a part-time job, you're driving Uber, working for Starbucks, you're doing something to cobble together income to free you up 
to make better career decisions for the long term, then I always tell leaders do that. Don't just take the first job that comes along because it's a paycheck, because you can go from bad to worse. And making yourself miserable does nobody any good. And your point about this is, again, a continuous consideration, not a one time. I loved this point about hiring your next boss. I I think we may go into situations thinking it's a one-way decision process and we have to show up and hopefully you choose me versus we're equally making a really big decision. Absolutely. And you have to make sure that you're hiring the boss that will do right by your career. One of the paralysis I see, especially in our Gen Zers and some of our millennials is they feel like they're making a decision for 30 years. And I say, you're making your opening move. They'll parlay into other choices, but you don't have to know what's coming in 15 years. If you're mid-career and you're in your 30s or late 30s, you're making your building decisions. You need the assignments that are going to give you the best stories to tell on your resume. You need the opportunities to really make sure your 40s are truly your building years, the years where you do some of your finest accelerant work, where you're becoming the best version of your professional self. And if you're late career, which brings with it a whole other set of self-concept, self-doubt, anxiety-provoking things. When you're experienced, why should I have to sell myself? But if you're making your last couple of moves where you're optimizing for only 15 years, this is your punctuating moment. This is your grand finale. You're picking one or two more moves that will give you a sense that when I look back, I'm proud, that I finished the career I wanted to start, that I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, that I left the fingerprint I wanted to leave. It's about legacy. And so make those last couple of moves. If you're 48 years old, these are really, really critical decisions because these are harder to get do-overs in. And so wherever, whether you're early career, mid-career, or late career, you're adding to the story in some form. And you have to be mindful of, do you know what you want that next chapter to say? And what role does this opportunity play in that? And can it get you where you want to go? I'm sure you've heard plenty of people, Mary, say things like, well, I'll give it a shot and see. Or if it doesn't work out, I can always go do something else. Or Sure, he was rude, but it wasn't that bad, and I need the job, so I'm sure it'll work out. And you can hear in their head all of the signals of doubt, all of the red flags are coming up, and they're working hard to deny them because they're trying to convince themselves they can make things work. Well, we all know those stories rarely go well. And so if you haven't got a set of very clear decision criteria, what is the yardstick you're holding up to any opportunity that would tell you it's right for you or it's not? And if the first thing you're looking at is the salary, chances are, there are probably some other metrics on your yardstick that are going to get faulty because you're, and it's not that economics are important. We have to make a good living. We all have financial ambitions. That's great. But if it's at the expense of other important metrics, and we all know the research says paycheck is not the top priority for people. That's right. But when you're panicked and you're anxious, it takes a disproportionate part of the decision criteria often to the fault of a bad decision. That's exactly right. I think Pay and title can often get a disproportionate weighting where most engagement surveys inside companies anchor towards, to your point about your manager and that relationship and your coworkers as a signal to how engaged and how happy you are in that environment and therefore doing your best work. Exactly. This CMO that I'm coaching, so he was surprised that the job reports to the COO, not the CEO. I said, do you know why that is? This is the company's first CMO job. They've had other marketing directors. This is the first. I said, so do you know what prompted them to want to, why now? If a CMO was the answer, what was the question? And I said, do you get to meet the marketing team you're inheriting? If one of their expectations of you is that you get to assess the talent that's there, do you get to talk to them? He said, that didn't even come up. I said, you need to meet them. 
If they're not going to have a say in your selection, that so be it. But you should have a say in theirs. And if you know you're going to inherit a team that's not very good, that's important for you to consider. So who you talk to in the organization or who you ask to talk to, just because they've put up a slate of people that they're using for their selection process doesn't mean that's all the people you need to speak with. I said to him, are you going to be speaking to the head of sales and the chief sales officer or the chief growth officer? Because we all know the CMO's relationship with the head of sales is a pretty critical one. And if this person is somebody you don't have a whole lot of regard for, you're not sure is good. Again, it doesn't mean it's a deal breaker, but you get to be fully informed. You don't want to find something like that out after you've started the job. Exactly right. Staying on looking in, you mentioned that we all have been guilty of this at some point in our careers, but not being calibrated enough with the feedback that we need to continue to grow and be successful. What are your thoughts? I mean, I know for everybody, for all kinds of reasons, feedback can be challenging. We don't seek it as much as we can. And I'll mention this. I recall very early days at GE, a manager saying to a group of us, and really stressing how important feedback was and really saying to us that if you don't get it, that's on you because it's out there anyway. It's not like it doesn't exist. It's what people think. So those who seek it and work it are those who are successful. He's actually now the CEO of Intel. (laughs) But I remember that. And I remember thinking, yeah, it's hard to hear some things, but why not? I don't know why you wouldn't want it. Here's the example I often give executives who've gone uncalibrated for too long. I have an article in the HBR called How to Give Feedback to Somebody Who's Gone Without It for Years, because you know you're going to be ripping scabs off. But here's the thing. Everybody else is talking about it. So if you're with a significant other, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, and you get in a car after a dinner party, you're leaving a little early, and you get in the car and your significant other turns to you and says, honey, you have a big thing hanging off the end of your nose. Get it off. It's been there all night. Your immediate response might be, you tell me now? We all have things hanging off our behavior that we can't see. And it's a topic of a lot of other people's conversations. Why would you not want to be in on it? Why would you not want to know? And so when you've not had to be in the situation of selling others on you as an option for a role or compelling or convincing others about why you're good and you're anxious about doing it, you're not going to bring your best self. You're going to oversell. You're going to sound self-important or you're going to undersell and look like you don't care. So sometimes the most introverted people who are anxious look like they're the most indifferent, apathetic people when they're actually the most passionate. Sometimes the most self-important, self-involved, self-advocating people are actually the most humble, but they're the most anxious about selling themselves. How would you know that? So if you don't understand how to fine tune the instrument and set others at ease with you and make them feel welcome, I tell my executives, here's how you need to think about the interview that you're working into. You need to put yourself in the mindset of this is somebody who's come to your house for dinner. They're over for a happy hour to your house or cocktails or appetizers. Be hospitable. Just create a tone as if the person interviewing you is a guest in your home. If you put yourself in that mindset, you'll warm the room up, you'll bring your best self, you'll bring your host self, and it will change the flavor of the room. If you see a picture of their family on the credenza, ask about it. If you see a common ground in a school they've been to, ask about it. Do what you would do to welcome somebody into your home and make them at ease with you. They will in turn make you at ease with them. If you cannot get out of the mentality of, I have to convince them I'm the right person, you're going to definitely convince them that you're not. Absolutely. Ron, you mentioned also the criticality of tenacity in the whole journey. And I often hear, and especially in challenging times, which we'll chat about in a second, I often hear candidates' frustrations 
because they never hear back. So they invest all this time and energy in a process, maybe go through multiple interviews multiple times, and then get ghosted. And I have a hard time justifying that and explaining that because we all do it. Every company, every recruiting firm can say, yes, we don't perfectly get back to every candidate. And it's a shame. And then when they seek feedback, because of the legal nature of our environments, they don't always get really truthful, direct feedback as to why another candidate or whether they should continue to pursue it. So that's a tough aspect. Thoughts on the tenacity of the journey? I think you just have to begin the process knowing it's cruel. There are incompetent recruiters out there. Ghosting is a thing. It's rude. It's cruel. It's mean. And you just have to know that's part of the deal. And you have to, as best you can, depersonalize it. Because the reasons you don't get picked could be just as many that have nothing to do with you as did do with you. And I always tell kind of if they didn't pick you, consider it, they did you a favor. It may not have had anything to do with whether or not you could do the job well. It could have been other factors of fit that would have made you miserable in that company. But you just have to face the fact that bouncing back from rejection is a new skill you have to earn. And I can actually send you a great article on I wrote a whole series on how to bounce back from rejection because it is a dig deep moment. And you have to work hard to recognize that it is not a referendum on your capability. It's as much a referendum on them as it is on your fit for that job, but it is not a referendum on you. One of the things I tell people is that these processes, they will often cause the cracks in your sense of self, but sometimes they also reveal them. If you lack self-confidence, if you have your own imposter syndrome, if you have your own sense of self-doubt, or any other hidden pathologies that you've managed to constrain because you've been in the workforce doing fine for 20 years, and suddenly now you're out there vulnerable and exposed and uncertain, sometimes those pathologies can come screaming to the forefront and be debilitating. So getting a coach or a therapist during the process can be just a good, healthy thing to do. Whether you think you can crush it or not, regardless of how employable you think you are, have somebody to accompany you on the emotional part of a journey. You'll be glad you did. It is an excessive burden psychologically and emotionally that you shouldn't carry alone and don't burden your spouse with it. So having somebody to go with you on the journey, you will never be sorry you did it. Ron, in our career framework, no grow flow, knowing ourselves is the foundation. What else might be helpful to know about ourselves and to work on internally as we navigate a career search? We all have origin stories. We all have formative moments in our life that shaped who we are, for better or worse. In his case, obviously, he had managed to face his origin story and rescript that narrative into something more productive. But for those who haven't, for those who have a lot of early childhood trauma, playground bullying, our brains imprint trauma in very, very select ways. And a lot of times those cracks in our triggers don't get revealed to we're vulnerable. We work very hard to conceal them, to create coping mechanisms around them. Those inopportune moments where we say to ourselves, why do I keep doing that? Well, there's a reason you keep doing it and it has an origin to it. It's not some random behavior you're choosing to employ. And so your anxiety, your nervousness, your over-self-confidence, your overcompensation, your verbosity, whatever it is, there's an origin to that behavior. And if you've never gotten feedback on it, or you don't know why you keep doing it, you have gotten feedback, but you haven't been able to change it. The job campaign process will be a startling Petri dish in which that fungus will come screaming out of you because you're so exposed. And so if you don't know what those origin stories are or the narratives they've shaped about how you see yourself in the world, you should learn them before you put yourself in front of a search process. Well said. So let's talk about looking out. I loved your example of the person you mentioned who really, I guess I would call it really well-prepared 
and was very thoughtful as they entered the process. I have heard from a lot of the search professionals and recruiters say people end up at the end never even asking thoughtful, strong questions or really kind of carry their evaluative weight in the process. Thoughts on, aside from what he put in the binder, what's going on there? I actually should pull up the text box of our exchange last night. I said, you will be evaluated far more on the questions you ask than the answers you give, especially the more senior you are. And I said, you have to poke. You have to ask some little bit sharp questions to see how they respond. Find out what's lurking in the closet for you. And so you have to draw them out. They need to know that you're thoughtful. And the questions you ask, the information you solicit says as much, if not more about you than the ability to articulate answers to the questions they ask you, especially if they're just going through your resume. Even behavioral event stories tell snapshots of you. They don't necessarily give a picture to the inner workings of your mind the way the questions do, because what you ask for tells people what you value, tells people what you're curious about, tells people what's a priority for you. So asking about the company strategy, asking about how your role fits into the mission, asking about the colleagues you'll be working with, asking about the culture of the organization and what's valued here. One of the questions I always tell somebody to ask is, what gets somebody fired here? That will tell you everything you would want to know about the culture. So you have to be your own anthropologist here. You are anthropologically examining the environment into which you're going to entrust your future. You have to make sure the environment is worthy of the future you want to build. I love that. And I think sometimes we may over-prepare on the business side. Got to ask all these really smart questions about the business, and that gets covered. But to your point about your hiring your own manager and the team you're going to work with, balancing the questions, things like of the potential hiring manager, who do you coach or mentor and tell me about those relationships? Or what was your relationship like with my predecessor? Who would be the predecessor? Or how do you assess the team? And really listening to some of those kind of responses. Both sets of questions are so important, Mary. One demonstrates your IQ, one demonstrates your EQ. And I think you have to show both. One of the questions I love to ask when I'm being hired as an executive coach is tell me how you assess, how you lead, how you guide people. Then I always ask, if I were to go around to your team and ask them that same question, would their answers match yours? And if I get it, I don't know. I said, okay, that's interesting. What should I conclude from the fact that you don't know? Ooh, nice. (laughs) Because I want to push. I want to see if they get defensive. Do they bristle? Do they go, wow, I probably should know. So I want to poke. As a job candidate going to the payroll, you have to temper that. But I do think that testing their comfort with you, with your voice and the reaches of your voice is important because if they just want a yes person, they don't want mirrors held up in front of them. They don't want you to ask hard questions they can't answer. You need to know that now. Fantastic. Let's talk about the story and getting ready for your personal brand, how you tell your story and make yourself visible. You had talked about the repertoire and having that ready. I love that because I think you're saying it needs to be real, but ready and having some time to think through how you want to say those things and get really comfortable because sometimes people even talking about themselves aren't that comfortable. But thinking that through, especially those tougher stories of maybe where you failed at something or whatever, didn't get it right. Those are things you want to think through, then be put on the spot. I'm sure you've sat in front of countless leaders that you recruited for, Mary, where you've said, tell me a story about a time where you resolve a conflict with another colleague or whatever the behavioral event protocol said was required for the role. And the veins in your neck started to pop out as the person babbled on for 15 minutes. We don't know what the point was, or they're just incoherent, or there are a lot of, um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, and it's painful to watch. 
when I'm coaching somebody through this process, I make them pick their eight or nine stories and I make them deliver them to me and on camera four or five times till they sound spontaneous, eloquent, compelling, interesting, and sharp. And two minutes, get it in within two, two and a half minutes. Do not go on for three minutes. And you want a set of stories that could be answers to multiple types of behavioral event questions. But if you're dealing with a panel situation where you're going from room to room to room to pairs of interviews, they're going to compare. And if you tell the same story eight times, you're going to look like a fraud. So you have to have a repertoire of stories compellingly rare to go that you own, that you know, that you're proud of. Even the ones that talk about places you failed or where you weren't at your best. They're ready to go at a moment's notice. And it's astounding to me how many people not only don't do that, but don't even know what the stories are and don't even think of one. And so the question gets asked and you see this, hmm, well, let's see. So how far back do you want me to go? A weakness. Um, so, um, So I suppose I'm impatient. I probably have too high standards, all the stock ones. There was, but on that note though, Ron, there was something a few years back or however long ago where really there was a belief that you should have pretty stories. So when I ask you about a weakness, please make sure it sounds like a strength and package it in a way that doesn't show anything real. That's all gone. But there was, I think people believed that for some period of time. And so you would hear more the, well, sometimes I work too hard. That (laughs) doesn't serve you at all. Now people see right through it. They're confident you're a fraud. So it's a delicate question. But if you can't be your authentic self in that moment, and that becomes a reason for them not to bring you in, then you don't want to be there anyway. Because it's not like that issue is not going to come out. They're going to find out about it anyway. You might as well tell them about it now. Let's talk about your network or a network. You had said it really needs to be well built and one that you can tap, not was so rusty or not formed that one day you're like, oh, I've got a network now. Although this is still one that we talk about a lot, but it's still an investment of time and focus that sometimes gets parked. The old proverb is true. You can't plant the tree the day you need the shade. And the reality is that when you suddenly find yourself in need of a job and you realize I didn't build that network and you reach out to Bill, hey, Bill, it's been years. How are you? Bill's going to be like, yeah, how are you doing? I looks like I got five minutes. I got to go. What's up? Hey, just wondering. And then it's awkward. So there's the whole issue of the unbuilt network. But then there's also the issue of when I ask people to do stakeholder maps of their networks, they're often surprised at how many people there actually are that they have equity with, well-built equity with whom they could ask for help. Many people don't like asking for help. So one of the ways, like doing informational interviews, reach out to colleagues on LinkedIn who are your peers, who you may be connected with, and ask, say, hey, could I just, I love what you do in your job, could I learn more? Don't make it about job support help, make it about two concentric circles back from that. Make it, go gather your data. But of course, the more people you have invested in, the more people you have helped, the more people you've supported, the more you have a network. It's always interesting when I say to people, make a list of 10 people in the last five years you've helped. Sometimes they really can't, that's painful. But if they say, oh yeah, I introduced her to my neighbor who works at Boeing or, oh yeah, yeah, I helped her. And you think you toss that away. I'm like, no, that's equity. That's bankable equity. So now how could they help you? Could they make an introduction to you? Could they look at your resume? Could they, what could they do for you? I don't know. I don't No, no, no. So sometimes just bringing the network into focus and examining it for what it honestly is, whether it's weak and small or the, the classic friend of a friend moment is actually there. You just can't connect the dots. And so it is something you have to study. You have to document it. You have to write out the names. You have to sort of talk about 
what's the state of the relationship right now? And is it strong enough for me to make a withdrawal? And people just, when you ask them about their network, they just sort of start looking up at the sky going, well, there's Bill and there's Sue. And oh yeah, that was that meeting last week. I went to that conference and got a couple of business cards and they start, it's like, it's like this asset. I'm like, would you treat your financial portfolio that way? If I ask you how much is in your retirement fund, you can probably tell me to the penny. This is no different. So why would you treat this portfolio of human capital any different than your financial future? And sometimes the sudden need to be in a job campaign, Mary, the side of the gallows focuses the mind. And it suddenly does wake up the need to, okay, my network certainly isn't going to be the help I would wish it would be for me in this campaign, but I won't let this happen again. And it does wake them up to the need to actually tend the garden, pull the weeds and do the right work to build an established set of relationships you can rely on. It goes back to the point from the beginning that it's a continuous mindset and investment. And your point, I love the equity thing. I want to pull that through a little. I think you're right is why does it feel weird to ask? Because you probably know you didn't have any equity there. And also not doing it one day, I blocked two hours and now I'm going to make introductions. But to your point of the natural bit, I read a great article. I wonder who would really also really like to read this or I meet someone and I can connect them or I give advice. And you're right, being really mindful about that as a continuous thing makes it so much easier to ring up or ping somebody and say, to your point, I'd love to learn this from you. If you define network as a set of professional and personal relationships that I find mutually gratifying that I enjoy versus it's the people I go to when I need something. If it's a, I need a 401k in case something goes wrong, or I need a pile of money to live on when I retire, two different things. So I think you have to decide what does the word network mean to you? and What role do you want it to play? And if you've decided you don't need one, that's a very dangerous conclusion to draw in this day and age. And so how you cultivate it, and even for introverts, I'm actually a really high introvert. So I hate networking. I have found a way in my life to do it in a way that is meaningful to me and to cultivate relationships that I care about. But it took a long time. And it took a crisis to sort of get me to recognize this is a problem. But there are ways to do it that don't feel distasteful, don't make you want to take a shower after you go to the event. Networking events themselves are probably the least desirable place to network. But there are ways to cultivate professional friendships and connections that can be gratifying to you. It just takes time. And one of my partners in my firm, Mindy, she's the poster child for this. She's done it since she was in her mid-20s. And there are people back 20, 30 years who still call her, who hire her who she still helps. She has all of their spouse's birthdays in her calendar. She sends them all Christmas cards. She knows when their birthdays are. She knows when their kids are going to graduate college. And she is constantly tending to that flock. She's an extrovert and she's incredibly skilled at it. So it comes easier for her, but it's still work, but she does the work. And now at this point in her career, that work is paying off handsomely because she's built such an incredible body of relationships of people who not only would take a bullet for her, but who need her. But your point, it's an investment. You called it, I love it, portfolio of human capital. That is worth a lot. That is massive in the span of your career. And even if early on you don't quite, like, why do so few 30-year-olds or 20-year-olds put money in their 401k? Well, if their paycheck is stretched, they can't afford it. But they don't need it tomorrow. But suddenly a 401k becomes a crisis at 48. Well, don't wait till it's a crisis to build the network. Just do it. Just do it. Trust you'll need it. And the payoffs will be there. And you'll also, it's a chance for you to contribute. It's a chance for you to help other people as well, to have an impact on the world, to help other people's lives. When they need you, people love opportunities to help. We all want to be somebody's hero. And so just trust that when the time comes, somebody's going to want to be your hero. Absolutely. You know, it 
colleague of mine recently said, and they're on the business development side of a company, but they said that a CEO who they greatly admire and used to work for, and so this is a CEO of a very large company, measured their relationships by who would call them back or respond back in 24 hours. And even at that level, they had maybe 10 or 20, but they were really, really strong relationships. But it got me thinking, yeah, of, to your point, who in that network could you really count on and would be a real response and would feel there was equity in the relationship? And it's a great thing to step back and just look at, not just talk about. And I think you have to believe, I don't know that I use the word karma, but sometimes it's not the same people. The people that I contribute most to may not be the people who I receive from, but there is a sort of sense of pay it forward, it will come back. And I think if you're a source of generosity in the world, if you're a source of compassion, if you're a source of care in the world, people will see that. And they'll know that when you ask for help, you're not just having your hand out. You probably do need it. Even if they've not been on the receiving end of your contribution, they'll know you're someone who does contribute because you have developed a reputation for that. And so they'll want to help. People don't want to help takers. Everybody should read Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. People don't want to be around takers or matchers. And so if you at least cultivate a reputation for being a giver, that when you have a need, because givers need to ask too, the world will show up for you. But if you're only someone who makes withdrawals and not deposits, that's going to leave you dry and vulnerable. We need help. Brilliant. One last one, and we'll move on. You had talked about, call it the paperwork or the digital profile, the CV, or the LinkedIn profile, or wherever and whatever you use in terms of a CV, also an investment. And you had really stressed how it's got to bring your full personality and personal brand through. Otherwise, it's just not representing you and it isn't really going to be that helpful. It's astounding today. I still am looking at executive resumes, people interviewing for CEO jobs, who it's job, five bullets of responsibilities, job, five bullets of responsibilities, education, hobbies, references available upon request. So I'm like, okay, let's talk about a summary and what you want people to know about you. I don't care what you're responsible for. I want to know what results you had. So the bullets need to tell a story and use narrative, make them longer. The whole has to be all on one page thing. Nobody cares. If it's worth reading, they'll read it. If it's short and useless, who cares? The bullets or the however you describe in the role have to tell a story about your impact through that role. It needs to see your values in there. I don't care that you ski on the weekends that you speak French. I really don't. But if you have civic responsibilities and you have outside interests that are of interest to me, tell me that if you're on a nonprofit board, if you run a foundation, if you want to tell me things outside your work life, make them relevant to me. That you're a championship tennis player or a country club is really irrelevant to me. Because whatever you put on that resume is going to say something about you. But besides what the bullet says, make sure it says something that you want it to say. Because a lot of those bullets are just attention seeking bullets. They're not actually informative and representative. LinkedIn has so much technology built into its algorithms about how you're found. If you don't know how LinkedIn works, if you don't know what each of those sections is meant to do and how computer scanners are looking for things and how many views you get is telling you how often you're being found in people's searches. So LinkedIn is a whole skill set. You have to learn to use it and leverage it. It is a powerful, powerful tool. And the photographs, the videos, all of the, the articles, you can put a body of work on your LinkedIn profile that's so rich and in-depth that a resume could never tell, that if you're not exploiting that resource and building your LinkedIn followership and networks, you're just leaving money on the table. Because it is that many recruiters don't even use resumes anymore. They're just using LinkedIn. 
And so if you've not optimized your presence digitally there, then you're really missing an important step in the process and missing an opportunity. And oh, by the way, I know we're talking about, in some ways, a job campaign as if we're talking about moving within an external job market or from inside a company out. But this whole thing makes even more sense as well in terms of your profile with whatever form. Actually, one company, we leveraged a LinkedIn profile and built our own internal CV. But if you want to move within your own company and grow, having your profile as robust and as invested in is just as important. Absolutely. If you care about tending for your career and you accept the reality that you're not going to be in the same job for 40 more years, and you accept that you're going to want to have other choices and need to have other choices, that is the equivalent of if you're going to be a runner, you have to have good running shoes and run every day. If you're going to manage your career as an asset to you, if you want your career to return to you deep levels of gratification and satisfaction, deep levels of learning and development, maximizing your earning potential, then that is the tool you have to tend to very well. And there are lots of great courses and videos. The great news is how to optimize LinkedIn. The whole world's doing it out there. You can go to take free courses. You can pay a coach. There's so many resources out there on how to do it well, because many have cracked the code. Take advantage of that. You have to do it on your own. Exactly. Ron, on the note of keeping your skills and capabilities relevant, the world is changing so much, and there's a need for a lot of different skills ahead. Any thoughts on that just broadly? or the process of ensuring that you are staying as relevant and continuing to grow and not stagnate there as well? Mary, I think there's two tracks to that question. One is the timeless things we know are only going to become more important. Your EQ, your ability to be empathic, understanding how you attach in relationships. And if you don't know your own style of attachment, go get a therapist and have them tell you what it is. Your ability to be curious and agile, your ability to change your mind, And boy, don't you wish we could just expunge the term soft skills out of the, that's just, I actually heard somebody ask, recently refer to those as the sophisticated skills versus technical skills. That's so much more appropriate to what they are. If you're not cultivating those and you've spent more time cultivating your technical skills, get on that because that really is what is more setting people apart today than technical skills. So that's one part of it, the timeless things you have to always be good at. But the second part is from a technical point of view, If you have concluded that your technical skills are not susceptible to disruption, get your head out of the sand. Just assume that somebody is out there someplace in the world looking to hijack whatever you're good at in whatever technology or a scientific stream or mechanical stream you're in to have a robot do it, to have a machine do it, to have somebody else do it. All the biopharma companies in the world today are getting ready for the fact that Google and Microsoft are entering the virus market with big data to do clinical pharmacology work because they can. So you're having these unlikely entrants to competitors. No taxi driver ever imagined Uber being an issue. So you have to constantly understand is what does the next 10 years look like in your field? What disruptive factors are on the horizon? Who's doing the cutting edge work? Are you staying up to date and read? Are you staying curious and taking night courses or taking online courses to sort of see what people are dabbling in? So there's the timeless body of EQ capabilities that you have to continually deepen. And then there's the adaptive skill set of places where what you do at some point in some way is susceptible to some technological disruption that you should be ready for. Excellent. I think we need to just sort of do that overlay on the current context, which is quite challenging. 38 and growing millions. Unemployed, some views that there are jobs 
that may not even come back. So clearly a period of time of a major adjustment in the job market and a major shift. Thoughts on, does anything change about what we talked about? I mean, I've been in the job market in many, many a deep recession and challenging times. So I relate to everything we've talked about, even good times or bad times. But in your mind, is there anything really to additionally consider given the context that we're currently in? I wish people would stop trying to predict what's going to happen. I think certainly for all the entry-level jobs in hotels and travel and places where restaurants, service jobs, where I think we have a lot of vulnerable people, many of them, or companies that had to, that made the unfortunate choice to have to downsize to save cash. I think on the other side of this, we don't know what's going to happen in the economy. I want to stay hopeful that a good part of it will return. I think you have to, at this point, you've got to make sure you're taking care of yourself. You've got to make sure you're doing all the good self-care things to keep yourself mentally agile and stable, emotionally even keeled, connected to people you love. Find ways to find joy. You've got to stay joyful and hopeful. If you lose those things, then it won't matter what happens post-pandemic because you won't be ready to re-enter anyway. So I would tell people, take care of your physical and emotional and social health as best as you can. If you're out there and trying to find a job in this market, part of the constraint is until those businesses reopen in your field, you may have to look to creative things like gig economies or side hustles or ways you can earn money that are creative that you hadn't thought of. There are plenty of things on the internet there about side gigs today that people can earn money and that you may have skills for. One of my favorite books is Entrepreneurial You by Dory Clock, and it's about how to monetize your... She's a dear friend of mine, and I love her to death. But she talks about the fact that there are lots of ways to monetize things you would never guess are monetizable and ways to earn it. So you may have to become a little entrepreneurial and creative in this season to build an income set of streams or several income streams to keep you in motion while you're figuring out the next step in your career, whether it's a return to what you were doing or building a bridge to something new. So this has disrupted all of us and forced us to find ways to be comfortable in, in the unfamiliar. For those of you who are job seeking at this point, it may mean that you have to widen your lens and be less linear about where you look. You mentioned even earlier, you're right, some choices that some people make that aren't maybe the most natural or they're a, a sidestep. But I'm a huge fan of that because if it makes sense for a lot of other reasons, you can learn so much in an unexpected way from so many experiences. And I've had so many of those in my life where it looked like a more circuitous route, but it was so much smarter and they may surprise you. Well, I think and every time you're sitting on the couch, depressed, anxious, sad, frustrated, angry, resentful, and hearing the stories of the person who got laid off and dug deep and found a new career doing something creative, or whatever, you think oh, that can never be me. Well, you'll be right if that's what you conclude. But that person thought the same thing. They never thought it would be them either. That's why isolation is dangerous. Do not isolate. Stay connected to other people. Get encouragement. Get help. It's a horrifically unwanted dig deep moment. But dig deep. We all have the equal opportunity to come out the other side of this better for the wearer that for each of us is going to require something different. But for goodness sake, don't throw in the towel and get out of the game and just decide that unemployment is the best I'm going to do. Because that's really a sad statement about how you see your future. Exactly right. And the pandemic didn't cause that. The pandemic just revealed it. Ron, what's a piece of career advice that you've received or you've benefited from through all of your experience that you might share with us? My mentor, who's still my mentor today, she's in her 80s and she's feisty, still teaching university. She looks like she's 50 and an amazing woman. But early on in my career, she said to me, nothing in life is irrevocable except death. And 
pushing me to say, take chances. You get do-overs, but you have to, you may skin your knees, you may screw it up, but try. If you talk yourself out of the shot before you even take it, that's on you. Isn't that the world didn't show up and gave you a shot? You need to take your shots and you get do-overs. Now, there are some things in life you don't get do-overs for, but they're very, very few. So talking yourself out of it because of what might happen or what they might think or what might go wrong is you may be forfeiting the best opportunity of your life in that one decision. That's brilliant. Thank you for that. Ron, I've heard that you are a collector. You collect a number of things. I don't know if that's right, so correct me, but I've heard you have a doorknob collection, and I was curious about that. And what so is that about? So you can about? see it right there in those jars. Well, we can't see because this will be audio, oh, but I'll see it. <laughs> okay. So I. So let me see. I'll say what I'm seeing. What am I see seeing? The three jars over wow. there. Wow. So that used to be one big giant jar, and that didn't work out so well. So I, <laughs> I started making these for colleagues and friends, including my mentor. I started installation art pieces, and there are collections of antique hundreds of year old doorknobs and skeleton keys and door knockers beautifully displayed in a glass that they're very interesting to look at. But what they represent for me are people who've opened doors, people whose careers are. If you think about the tens of thousands of hands that have touched all those doors or knocked on those doors or opened those keys, they represent millions and millions of stories of people entering, leaving liminal spaces or going between liminal spaces. And these are, for me, there are people who I thought represented by their lives as door openers, people who made way for others, people who opened doors for others, people who knocked until they got the answer they wanted. And so I started making them for people in my life as a way to thank them for being that. And I decided I wanted one for me. (laughs) That's so awesome. They remind me every day that we all have the chance to open doors for others. And you never know the thousands of stories that will come behind you when you take the chance to open the door for somebody. Ron, thank you so much. Thanks for making this time to join the conversation today. I have so appreciated, and I think everyone will, hearing from your experience and your wisdom and all the practical tips. There was a huge amount of richness there in practical tips that'll really matter and serve people well in the career journey overall, and especially when it's a little bit harder to navigate. Thank you a ton. Mary, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm guessing you'll put in your show notes. If people want to stay in touch, they can find me at navalent.com. So come find me. We have a free ebook on leading transformation and change. People can come download at navalent.com slash transformation. So come and hang out and check what we're doing and find me on LinkedIn and Twitter and stay in touch. Thank you again, Ron. My pleasure. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at Modern Career Pod. We'll include the sources noted in the episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. 